I was first introduced to uh, Father Peter Gilquist through a, a book, and I think I was 16 years old, just about to turn 17. And uh, the older I get, the longer ago that was. Uh, and my, uh, my brother and I, he had an interim month off in January. He was going to Oklahoma Baptist University. And uh, we were painting my grandmother's house. And he had gotten uh, exposed to a group of men who had come out of Campus Crusade and were searching for the New Testament church. And I was a junior in high school, and he gave me a book called Love is Now. Uh, I imagine if Father Peter rewrote that book, he might change a few things. But it, it really had an impact on it. And the very least, I would say that was a journey book. That book was part of your spiritual journey. It became part of my spiritual journey and, and helped me to understand the love of God and the depth of his forgiveness. I actually was raised Orthodox by Baptist parents. I know that sounds very strange, but it is exactly the truth the longer I live. My parents were very pious and very serious. And I, <laughs> I get emotional when I talk to them. I'm going to try not to do this when I talk about them uh, because they're, they're both gone now. You know, my dad was a D-Day veteran. We knelt and prayed every night. I mean, on our knees every night. Even when they were old, <laughs> and I went to see them, 9 or 9.30, we would read from the scripture, we would take prayer requests, and we would get on our knees and pray, because that's what they did. And he did it three times a day. And as a child, I can remember, you know, you're laying there, you're on the couch and peeking over and looking at his legs, because his legs bled a lot when he kneeled because of his injuries in the Normandy invasion. But it wasn't going to keep him off his knees. And it was a, a deep piety. And I remember even before he had his stroke, his 18, and when he was 78 years old, if I would go into the, his house, his apartment, I had a key, and they were living in Nashville where I was living at the time. Sometimes I'd walk in. If it was noon, I could look back in his office, and he'd be on his knees an amazing couple. And I know that every time he was on his knees, I was in his prayers. And the reason I'm telling this story, it's a circuitous way of introducing you, Father Peter, is I had an experience with him later in life. And it, it, for me, it, it was a, kind of a, a moment of fulfillment of this journey that I had the good fortune by the grace of God to enter into with Father Peter, Father Gordon Walker, those that were with him that led me to the Orthodox faith. Because in the Orthodox faith, I found the depth of piety that I saw in my parents. And they saw it disintegrate before their eyes over a number of years in the Baptist church. And uh, later in life, when he moved to Nashville and was out of town where nobody could see him <laughs> from his former Baptist church, which he pastored for 38 years in southeast Oklahoma, he visited our parish four or five times. And he would always come when his grandchildren, my children, were with me. And uh, one day, they had, one weekend, I think they had left, and, the, and I had gone uh, to have lunch after church with my mother and father. And he was, 
And they had come to church with me again. I'm not sure why they came that Sunday, but he had kind of befriended another D-Day veteran at St. Ignatius in Nashville. But he was real quiet. He was just sitting there eating his lunch. And just all of a sudden he said, after all these years and all our discussions, I know why you became Orthodox. And I said, well, Dad, why do you think I became Orthodox? And he said, because your church still believes that God is holy and holds him in awe. Now, for me, and of course this is the son, this is not the judgment of the church, that was his conversion. And I really think that his conversion in some way, when you look at all that God has done, is doing some part of what Father Peter had to do in my life. It gave my dad a chance like Moses to at least see into the Holy Land. And it was almost immediately after that he had a stroke. And uh, you know, he, never, he never was catechized or chrismated, but he saw something in it that he had been learning and trying to practice and trying to be devoted to all his life. And you know, I mentioned all the people that come here. And uh, I tell that story quite a bit when I do chapel tours. And, and, and it really resonates with people. Because when you look at the church in America, and when you look at what's happening in all these denominations, the big thing that's lost is God's no longer holy, and people no longer hold him in awe. I'm not going to take a lot of time to introduce Father Peter. You all know him quite well. He's certainly a leader of a movement that uh, has impacted many people outside that movement, the New Covenant Apostolic Order, the Evangelical Orthodox Church. He's now head of the Department of Missions and Evangelism for the Antiochian Archdiocese of North America. He's a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, like you, the former Lutheran, like some of those folks that come here that uh, I exchange a lot of stories with. So, Father Peter, without any further ado, come speak to us. Thank you. And welcome to a, an Orthodoxy seminar. These things are held all over the country. Sometimes, can the mic get a little less... Uh, Echo we hear. Is that better? It's not better yet. No. Oh, okay. How's that? Try Sounds good. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay, then I can do my Garrison Keeler imitation and not blow you out of here. No, I'm kidding. Um, seminars like this are being held all over the country uh, in churches, in school rooms, uh, places, auditoriums like this. And it's simply a chance for people to get together and hear about what is the Orthodox faith. And tonight I want to talk about who is Jesus Christ, getting to know the original. <clears throat> Probably like many of you, I was brought up <clears throat> in a church going home. As, as, uh, Father, as Paul mentioned, I was Lutheran. It's a background, by the way, I'm very grateful for. I'm, I'm disheartened at the direction that the Lutheran Church is going today. And, uh, but for me, it was a very good uh, basis of faith. And they taught us all the, all the meat and potatoes stuff, you know, the Lord's Prayer, the 23rd Psalm, Luther's small catechism. We memorized the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. And uh, in all of that, 
I never really felt I connected with God as a, as a young adult. As a little kid, I had a, I had a very strong faith. But as, a, as things, you know, as the years went by, it, it, it waned. And uh, <clears throat> there was a song that was popular, I suppose, 25 years ago called Slip Sliding Away. And that's the way you leave God. Almost never do you leave him in an instant. But you slip slide away. And it started probably in junior high school. And um, it started with um, things that were really fun that took the place of God. They weren't even evil things. You know, football games, uh, uh, girls, uh, uh, parties, uh, friends. But, but all of this crowded out what whatever relationship I had had as a little kid with the Lord. And then, of course, <clears throat> high school augmented that, and then off to college. And ironically, the fraternity house that I joined at the University of Minnesota, the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity, was right next door to the Lutheran Student Center. And I remember the day I moved into the fraternity, I said to myself, Gilquist, you will never darken the door of that place next door all the time you're here, and I never did. And I didn't hate God, I didn't hate church, but I didn't love God, and I didn't love church. And in a fraternity Bible study that took place in my junior year, I discovered the Bible has a word for that, and it's lukewarm. It's in, in Revelation chapter 3, where the Lord is speaking prophetically to seven churches in, in the part of the world we call today Asia Minor. And... Uh, when he got to the seventh of those churches, the church at Laodicea, he said, I've got one thing against you, and that is that you're lukewarm. And I remember sitting in, in our card room that night with about ten of my fraternity brothers and this guy from Campus Crusade leading the Bible study, and I thought, that's me. I'm lukewarm. <clears throat> and then there's that kind of ominous sentence uh, where the Lord says, I would that you were cold or hot, but because you are lukewarm, I will spew you out of my mouth. And I remember thinking, what does that mean? And then my next thought was, I don't want to know what that means, because it's not good. I was, I was majoring in advertising, and I remember the day the professor said, now, that we were studying ads, and they were print ads, but it could also apply to television ads. And he said, obviously, what's what's the best response to an ad? And we said, well, strong positive. And then, then he said, what's the second best response? And we said, neutral. He said, wrong. Second best response is, small, is strong negative. Because even though you don't like the ad, you remember the product because you don't like the ad. And so <clears throat> you're likely if the product that you like isn't there, to pick up the, pro the product you don't like because you remember the product. And uh, that's what the Lord is saying. I would rather that you were cold or hot. Neutral always places last. He wants us hot. But the second choice is cold. But we were lukewarm. Laodicea was lukewarm. So he called on the Laodicean Christians to repent, which means to, I, when I talk on the campus, I say that means spiritually you do a 180, a UE. And you're, you're heading away from God, and repentance is when you say, okay, Lord, I'm going to turn toward you. I'm, I'm turning around. And uh, 
So I kept reading, and then there's a promise right at the end of Revelation chapter 3 where he says to these lukewarm Laodicean, it's an Orthodox church, it was the only show in town back then, and they were baptized, presumably they'd you know, gone on, on, off and on to communion. And he says to them, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him. And then that, we had these old King James Bibles, I will sup with him. I didn't know what that meant. But I did know what I will come into him meant. And the, the Bible teacher said, now, here's the deal. <clears throat> he didn't say I might come in. He didn't say I'll come in if you feel it. He said if you hear my voice, which is the gospel, and open the door, which is a surrender of your will to him, I will come in. And I will sup with you. I, I would, if I were to say it today, I'll commune with you. The Lord only serves one supper. We call it the Holy Eucharist, communion. I will come in, I will, I will commune with you, and you with me. So that night as I went up to bed, as a little kid, I always prayed right before I went to sleep, pulled the covers up over my head. And so that night I prayed. I just said, Lord, you know, I want you to come and live in my life. And I ask you to forgive my sins. And I... I said, from here on out, I'm yours, and I'll do whatever you tell me to do. And I waited for a feeling. <laughs> Did you ever do that? I'm not against feelings. I don't think God's against them. But, you know, the scriptures do say the just will live by faith, and sometimes faith doesn't have a feeling. So uh, I went to sleep, got up the next morning, got out of bed, and there was a sense of peace that I hadn't had in years. And the Bible calls it the peace of God that passes all understanding. You can experience it, but you can't explain it. I went into the room. My roommate was in there shaving, and he was in the Bible study. So I said, Rich, last night I finally did it. And he said, did what? I said, last night I gave my life to Christ. And he, I remember he looked at me. I was back here. He was in the, looking in the mirror. He said, I'll watch. <laughs> and, uh, so... Um, he watched. As a matter of fact, he watched 10 years. We were best friends. He was best man on our wedding and uh, ended up uh, being commissioned through ROTC, went to Germany, married a lovely German girl who was also a lukewarm Lutheran. Germany is full of them. And uh, <coughs> when we were in Campus Crusade, now, of course, I'm, I'm moving ahead. Okay, that was in the spring of my junior year. By winter, by Christmas of my senior year, I knew that God had called me to serve him full-time in the ministry. And, um, in fact, I'll throw this next thing in. There was a man who taught at Luther Seminary in St. Paul. I just assumed I'd be Luther. I mean, I've been Lutheran all my life. Dr. George Oss, I had never met him, but everybody said he was a saint. So I called him, cold turkey. I said, Dr. Oss, I, I think I want to be in the ministry and I'd like to come visit with you. So we set an appointment. I drove across the river to St. Paul and found a place to park and found his office. And I told him what I've just told you. And I said, I believe that God is calling me into the ministry. And he got tears in his eyes. And he said, Peter, I pray for young men like you to come here, but don't come. And I said, really? 
He said, they'll talk you out of what you believe. And he used a phrase I'd, I'd never heard before. He said, Protestant liberalism has taken this place over. He said, they'll talk you out of the inspiration of the scripture. They'll talk you out of the virgin birth. Some of them try to talk you out of the resurrection. And, and I, I, I was sitting there, here's a guy 70 years old, gave, gave his whole life to this church, and now he's saying, don't come. He said, go somewhere where they believe the Bible. And I, I can still remember, you know, when the blood drains out of your head, what that feeling is like? A man without a country. So I thanked him. I, I think he had closed our little meeting in prayer. I, I didn't think to ask him, well, wh where do they believe the Bible? So uh, I, I remember driving back to the campus down University Avenue and just saying, man, I, I'm starting over. This is, I'm nowhere. So in Campus Crusade, I checked around with some of my friends, and they said, well, there's this really good seminary down in Dallas, Texas. They really teach you the Bible. And by the way, that's true. They teach you the text. And uh, <clears throat> so I applied, was accepted. Marilyn and I were married that spring. And uh, in August, we drove down to Dallas. That's a bad month to go to August, Brother Abair. And uh, <clears throat> it was a really fun year for us. And I was so new, and, and Marilyn too. She had given her life to the Lord just shortly before I did. And I can remember taking, a, uh, in, in, in one of the classes, I think it was a book of Acts, uh, we got to Ananias and Sapphira. I, I thought it was some kind of a first century rock group. I'd never heard of them. And so I, I asked the prof who they were, and the whole class laughed, because they all knew the Bible. And uh, it was just a tremendous year. And I had a buddy, Jimmy Williams, who had also been converted the year earlier. He and I became very good friends, still are. And uh, we'd, we'd cram for Greek. We both had trouble learning Greek. And I remember one of the first Greek tests, it was actually the final, if I remember right. And there's this thing called the Luo chart where they take the verb Luo, which is light, and they conjugate every possible way. The thing is two by three, and the print's that big. And so we'd memorize that thing because we didn't understand the grammar. And I remember Williams, we're standing out there waiting for the professor to come to unlock the door. And J Jimmy's 5'4", and I'm 6'4". He looks up at me and says, Gilquist, don't bump me or I'll forget everything I know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we finished out that year, and Bill Bright <clears throat> phoned me. And he said, I'd like you to leave, leave seminary and come up to Chicago and start Campus Crusade at Northwestern University and uh, form a board and then spread around the state. And uh, Bill never did believe in seminary. And he went himself, but he never graduated. And I said, well, Bill, you know, I'm on a, I'm on a uh, plan with the ROTC. If I quit school, I'm in the Army. I, I'm no good to you. He said, well, then transfer to Wheaton and just take a minimal load, just enough to get by. So I remember going into Dr. Campbell's office. He was the registrar then, Dr. Donald Campbell, later was the president of the school. And I don't know where I got this, but I said, Dr. Campbell, uh, Bill Bright wants me to move to Chicago and transfer to Wheaton so I can start Campus Crusade. And I'd really planned on finishing four years here. And so I, I've come to ask your blessing. And he, just, he blanked, because that, that's not Dallas terminology. And again, I'm not sure where I got that. 
And he said, well, I've been here, Peter, I've been here, I don't know, 20 years. He said, you're the first guy that's ever asked me for a blessing for anything. He said, you may go. Isn't that neat? <laughs> so, and, and you know, it's kind of a built-in thing at Dallas. If you leave without graduating, you're automatically de facto out of God's will. And uh, because of that, I, I felt that I left properly. So anyway, we went to Wheaton, Maryland, <clears throat> took her senior year there. They waived the 90-hour requirement, which was so gracious of them. Dick Gross was the dean back then. And um, <clears throat> so we had a year at Wheaton, very hard year, because whereas Dallas was kind of bright and cheerful and sparkly, Wheaton was in a period of kind of the, uh, the gloom cloud. And um, you know, pe people didn't have the joy there that they did, especially in the grad school that they did at Dallas. And uh, so that was a difficult year, but we'd, we'd sneak over to Northwestern, begin to meet students, and then the following year, I just thought, you know what, I, I'm going to go for it. If I just keep going to school to get out of my, you know, deferment. So <clears throat> I wrote a letter before I left Wheaton to the 5th Army. I got the name of the commanding officer, 5th Army in, in St. Louis. And I said, the essence of the letter was, since I've signed my commitment with ROTC, I've become a Christian, and this is a time of peace, and I honestly think I can do America more good calling the college kids to a commitment to Christ than I can teaching a group of raw recruits how to load and clean an M1 rifle. But I said, sir, if you want me to serve, I will serve and I'll be the best soldier I can be. But I'm writing to ask if I could get a discharge. They never give them. I mean, they pile thousands of dollars into these ROTC kids. And they paid part of my last two years of school at the University of Minnesota. And of course the Army is slow like the Orthodox Church. <laughs> and, uh, so I was in my living room trying to witness to a kid who was scared to death of being drafted. And <clears throat> Marilyn comes in and gives me the mail. And here's Fifth Army Headquarters in St. Louis. I said, before I open this, I'm going to tell you the story and let's see what God did. And I open it up, there was no letter or anything, just an honorable discharge. And the guy just said, wow. So <clears throat> I was free to serve, and we served almost a decade in Campus Crusade, first at Northwestern, and then we opened up the University of Illinois and University of Chicago and Northern Illinois at DeKalb, which then literally sat in the middle of a cornfield. And uh, we began to recruit staff at Wheaton and, and Moody, and uh, I remember there was a kid in my class at Moody, my leadership class, I didn't teach there, but it's Campus Crusade leadership class named Chris Finger. And uh, so he, I remember taking him into a fraternity house at, at, at University of Chicago, and that's tough stuff. I mean, you know, those guys are intellectuals and they're also animals all at one time. And we were in the Fidelt house, had dinner, and I was going to speak after, and Chris was along. And I heard somebody say, pass the bread, and I looked up, and here goes the whole loaf across the dining room. <clears throat> and uh, I say that because, what, 10 years, 8 years ago, I get a call. Father Peter, I, I don't know that you remember me. My name is Chris Finger. Now, you'd think with a name like that I'd remember, right? And I said, Chris, I'm trying to picture you. He said, I was about 6'4". I was in your leadership training class at Moody. And uh, he said, I'm calling you from Denver, my wife and I, 
uh, are thinking about being orthodox. I've got to be at a piano convention in L.A., and I'm wondering if we, we could drive up and see you. I said, come on up and spend a few days. And what a joy it was to pre-catechize Chris and Barb Finger. I had never met her, but uh, he had met her and married her, and uh, they were in the music business, sold retail imported pianos. And uh, what a joy, after all those years, to take a, a guy that was in my leadership training class and help him and his wife become Orthodox, and they are, and they're in Denver. And uh, so that's just a little aside. Well, we um, <clears throat> spent a decade, and meantime, my college roommate, Rich, and his wife, Ursula, moved back to Chicago. He was with Burston Marsteller, which was the largest uh, advertising agency in the world, and we had both majored in advertising. And so Marilyn and I had have dinner with them periodically, and uh, just loved him, but she was ice cold toward God, and he just didn't want to talk about it. So one night we'd had dinner at their house, and they lived a good bit away. They were in Hinsdale, I think, somewhere on the south side, Hinsdale's west. They were, this was before they moved to Hinsdale. And I'm, we're driving up the freeway, and I said, you know what, honey, I'm not going to talk to them anymore. I said, I think I'm doing more harm trying to talk with them about Christ. I'm going to just shut up and... We said, Lord, if you want them to respond to you, you do it, because we've done everything we know to do. And so we <clears throat> got home, and a few days passed, maybe a week or two, and it was noon, and the phone rang, and it was Rich. He said, I did it. <laughs> I said, what do you mean? He said, I gave my life to Christ today. I said, you're kidding me. He said, I got fired. Right before lunch, they called me in and canned me. And he said, I got a wife and two kids and, and no job. And he said, I had nowhere else to go. There's an old country song that goes, where, where would I go but to the Lord? And uh, <clears throat> so after 10 years and finally turning it over to the Lord, he was converted. And then the next time we were together, Ursula said, this guy's driving me nuts. And I said, what do you mean? She said, he comes home from work, he reads the Bible. He prays, <clears throat> and she said, I, I don't want this. And I said, but wouldn't you like to go to heaven? She said, well, who wouldn't? I said, you don't, you don't go, the price tag on salvation isn't that you have to read the Bible. She said, really? And it, we just, we, I called it back in those days, Paul, we slopped her in grace. Remember that phrase? It, there's nothing you can do to gain God's favor apart from Christ. And so, anyway, she became a Christian. She committed her life to Christ. And then Rich called and says, all she's doing is reading the Bible. <laughs> well, anyway, that, that's just life is full of those stories. Um, <clears throat> toward the end of our time in Campus Crusade, uh, I, I had gotten locked in with some, some men that were just became lifelong friends. And, you know, Campus Crusade has got a ton of momentum now. We were the guys that went, you know, there, there's the, 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 uh, the pioneers and then the settlers. The pioneers sail the ocean, they clear the land, they get killed by the Indians and freeze to death in the winter and starve to death in the, before the crops are in. And, and then the settlers, after Jamestown is built and, and things are up and going, then the settlers move in. <clears throat> And, and we, were, we were pioneers. 
and and a lot of campuses the administration hated us the religious foundations hated us and uh, for some ecclesiastic ecclesiology I'll get it church wise they had a beef and that is that we weren't church we were parachurch and and they didn't like that and now I understand that but uh, so we'd, we'd go out and get bloodied all during the school year and then we'd come come to Arrowhead Springs in the summer and it was three months of just being together and friendships and praying together and reasoning and studying the scriptures and so on. So we, we became tight. And of course that group was John Braun and Dick Ballou and Gordon Walker and Ken Bervin and several other guys that didn't become Orthodox. <clears throat> And we became inseparable. If you've ever played football, you know what it's like. Uh, when you go, when you war together, you build friendships that are different than if it's just the guy next door. And that's what we experienced. And I think in the military, in fire departments, in police departments, this dynamic is present. And um, so toward the end of our time in Campus Crusade, we realized that what we were doing was not making a change. Kids were being converted, a lot of them didn't stick, and we said, what's wrong? And it was through that question, what's wrong, that the Holy Spirit brought us first through the scriptures to look at the church, specifically in the book of Acts, where the converts mostly did stick, and where churches were built out of the work of the apostles. And the Holy Spirit began to say to us, the name of the game is church. And we said, you're right. So that became the impetus that brought us to the doorstep years and years later of the Orthodox Church. And uh, it was an incredible journey together. And it's always fun to hear Paul and others from those years that uh, where we, you know, we knew where we wanted to end, end up but we didn't know what the New Testament church was, A, and B, we didn't know how to get there. And uh, once we discovered what it was, it was the pearl of great price. And that gospel is so easy to preach on, but it's so hard to have to go through. We lost friends, and so you, many of you, I'm telling your story. We lost our financial security. We just started all over again. Because when you find it, you sell everything you have to obtain it. And there were nights, I, I remember waking up at night, you know, in this process and saying, Gilchrist, are, have you gone nuts? You've got a wife and kids. You, you can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. And yet we go back and realize, yeah, this is it. And, and we need to keep going. Well, part of <clears throat> what we learned in those years is that we, we had to start by answering the question that Christ himself asked, who do men say that I am? And I'll say this without reservation. And if you're here tonight and you're not Orthodox, this will be comforting to you. And that is, once you nail down who Jesus Christ is and what he has done for you, you will become Orthodox, if you get that right. Because the Orthodox Church is the only place on the face of the earth that holds the fullness of this faith. Was I a Christian in, in those early years when I committed my life to the Lord? I believe I was. I, I was. 
and I was operating on the light that I had, and it was good light. It's just that it wasn't full. It wasn't the whole ball of wax. So what I'd like to do in conclusion tonight is go through three things with you. Number one, who is Jesus Christ? Number two, what has he done for us? And then number three, what does he promise us? First of all, who is he? Back in Crusade, and I've, I really like what I'm going to do, it's just not complete. There, there was a piece written, the Rockettes do it at Christmas in New York City, at their Christmas uh, bonanza. We used it in our fraternity meetings, and it's called One Solitary Life. You know that he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in his father's carpenter shop. And then after 30 years, he began his public ministry. It's, it's a beautiful piece. The problem is it starts at the wrong place. He was born in an obscure village, but that's not the start of the story. The start of the story is way back in eternity past, when there existed from before all time, God the Father, together with his only begotten Son, and the Holy Spirit. There never was a time the Father was not. There never was a time the Son was not. And that's why we say he's eternally begotten of the Father. With, without a point of time start. Eternal. Father Tom Hopkill calls it pre-eternal. The Father is pre-existent, always existent, as is the Son, as is the Holy Spirit. And in the Old Testament, as you read through, there are over 300 prophecies that one day this Son, this Messiah, will come to earth. The prophets tell where he will be born. They name that obscure village. It's Bethlehem. And at the time that that, that prophecy was given in 400 B.C., there were five towns on earth called Bethlehem. And he got the right one, Ephrathah. Isaiah talks about how he'll be born of a virgin. And uh, the Hebrew word for virgin is also translated young woman. Because back in those days, young women were expected to be virgins. They were synonymous. And of course, the, the unbelieving scholastic crowd has a blast with that because they say, well, it's, you know, it's just a, a young woman. Forget the virgin part. Okay, but th that negates what Isaiah is saying. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Young women conceive all the time, for crying out loud. But this is a virgin who conceives. Isaiah talks about his death in Isaiah chapter 53. By his stripes we are healed. And we call that passage the, the suffering servant. And on and on, you, you read of the life of Christ over 1,500 years, prophetically portrayed in the Old Testament. And then, in the, what St. Paul calls the fullness of time, the angel Gabriel pays a visit to the Virgin Mary. And in Luke chapter 1, it's recorded. And says, the Almighty God will overshadow you, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the one who is to be born 
to you will be called the Son of God. So one of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, 2,000 years ago became man in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And people say, well, why is orthodoxy pay so much attention to Mary? Because without Mary, there's no incarnate son. There's the eternal son, the logos, but that son is not man. And in order for us to experience salvation, one of us needs to be God. And so the son of God becomes man without ever ceasing to be God in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And the blood of Christ, which you receive in the Eucharist, that blood he received from her. I remember in seminary, somebody was doing a thing on the burning bush, and they said, you know, any old bush would do. That may be true of a bush, but I'll tell you what, it's not true of the mother of God. And uh, God chose her, and she said yes to him. And so Christ was born. The story doesn't begin at Bethlehem. The story begins in eternity past. And then the creed tells us who for us and for our salvation he came down from heaven. The thing that makes the gospel so amazing is that he didn't have, he, he didn't have to do it. He agreed to do it. And so he laid aside this glory. We read about that in Philippians chapter 2. He laid aside all of the glory that was his in the presence of the Father with the Holy Spirit and came down here for us and for our salvation. I've never gotten over that, people. So that's who he is, the eternal Son of the Father who has taken upon our flesh in the womb of Holy Mary. And for all eternity, he is fully God and fully man. There is a man in heaven tonight who is our advocate, our savior. And because of him, we can know God, for he is God. Okay, what did, that's who he is. What, what did he do? We first, beyond his birth, his miraculous birth, we meet him next at age 12, confounding the elders in the temple. I love that. He was about, as he told his parents who couldn't find him, he said, I'm about my father's business. And then we don't hear a whole lot about him until he begins his public ministry. When we were in Campus Crusade, Father John Braun had a message that he called what Jesus was like in college. Interestingly enough, it's, it's not in the Gospels. But it is in the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> because St. Paul in Hebrews says, he was tempted in all points like we are, but, he's with, but he was without sin. And that's what Jesus was like in college. And he went on and said, it had to be the day, maybe 18, 19, some pretty girl walked through Nazareth. He was tempted, just like you guys are, he'd say to the kids. But he's without sin. And if you're united to him, you can be without sin too. You can overcome temptation too. 
And I believe that's a very, very fair application of that verse. What are you tempted with? Jesus was tempted with it. But he said no to sin. And through union with him, we can say no to sin. He went about, starting at about age 30, preaching the kingdom of God, healing people, healing impossible cases, like the man born blind, and remember he spit on the ground and made some mud. And uh, one of the fathers, I can't remember which one, said what he did, that this man was born without eyeballs. And he, he, just as God took the dust of the earth and formed Adam, so the Son of God takes the dust of the earth and impl- does an eye implant and gives him eyes. He created eyes for him. He caused uh, lame people to walk, distraught parents. He'd bring their kids back to life. Just like the Old Testament prophets said the Messiah would. Those who had known him just a short time said he does all things well. There's never been another like him. And then for our sake, he endured the cross. The crowd turned against him. The religious leaders of the Jews stirred up the people. And he was crucified between two thieves. And the devil thought he had him. And then he descended into hell and ransacked the place. Demons flying everywhere. I love it. And he freed the captives. He he put death to death. And then he rose victoriously from the dead. And through his resurrection, we have the power to live a new life, a resurrected life. For 40 days, he taught his apostles the things of the kingdom of God. And uh, uh, Emmaus, Father Andrew, did not. Remember when he opened the scriptures to them? And they said, did not our hearts burn within us? Let the scriptures burn in your heart. Get excited about them. I don't mean in a surface way. But when you see Christ in the scriptures, it'll change your life. And give you confidence not only in in the Lord, but in his written word. The living word and the written word. And then he ascended into heaven. But before he went, he said to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Teaching them all things and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. They They took him seriously. And as the book of Acts records, they went out and spread the gospel and planted the churches. And uh, he was in heaven praying for them while they did it, just like he's in heaven tonight interceding for us. And then the next promise is that he will come back again. So that's what he did for us. He became man for us and for our salvation. He brought the presence of the kingdom to earth. And his miracles attest his divinity. He died for us, taking away the sins of the world, rising again to give us new life. That's why they call it the good news. We've never had news like that. 
who he is, the Son of God in the flesh, what he did, transformed all of creation, including human life. And then what he promised. You know, we could go all night on what he promised. At the end of John, St. John says, I suppose if everything Jesus did was written down, the, the world couldn't contain the books. Uh, who knows how much else he did beyond what is written in the scripture. But look, just look at a few of the promises. <clears throat> First of all, he says in Matthew 23, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. I'd have loved to have gathered you as a mother hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you wouldn't let me do it. St. John comments on that truth, and he said he came unto his own, the Jews, and his own received him not. But to as many as received him, he gave the power to become the children of God, the Jew first and also the Greek. He calls on us to receive him. He, gave, he, come to, he came to give us new life. One night a, a Jewish teacher came to him and he said, Rabbi, what must I do to have eternal life? And he said, you must be born of the water and the spirit. You must be baptized and you must be chrismated. That's exactly what that means. And it's a gift. It's a gift. You can't, you can't earn baptism. And it's life transforming. Because as we come out of, up out of the water, which is the death and the burial and our resurrection in him, then he gives us new life through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. St. Paul, commenting on that reality, said, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He said to those who came to him, your sins are forgiven you. And the, the, we have sacraments that make that real for us, and that is confession and the Holy Eucharist. It's life-giving. He said in John chapter 6, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. And so every Sunday... Just as in the book of Acts, on the first day of the week, they came together to break bread. So 2,000 years later, we're coming together on the first day of the week to receive the bread of life, his body and his blood. He issues a promise to those that are in the dumps. He says, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. What a promise that is. There's a man named Bob Munger who years ago gave a talk, I believe at Moody Bible Institute, called My Heart Christ's Home. And it's a brilliant talk. Get it and read it. I mean, it's, 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 it's actually quite orthodox. And uh, he talks about the living room, inviting Christ into the living room of our lives, into where we live, to the dining room, giving them our appetites, the bedroom, the, I mean, just the, the whole house. I got to meet Bob Munger before he died, and by then I was Orthodox. And I said, Dr. Munger, if you had to re rewrite the book, let, would you change anything? He said, I'd add a room. And I said, what room would that be? 
He said, the basement. He said, my wife died several years ago. He said, the hardest thing I ever went through. And I went down into the basement. I went into depression. And I realized that I could invite Christ into the basement of my life. And he pulled me out of it. He said, I still miss her. But he got rid of the depression. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, or depressed, burdened down, I will give you rest. And then he said, take up your cross and follow me. I'm not, you know, I beg your pardon, I'm not promising you a rose garden. There'll be tough times and you take that cross up just like I had to take mine up. And follow me. And so we learn that, that we too are disciples. He's got more than 12. The, the apostles are utterly unique, but we join into their apostleship and become his disciples too. And we tell him, we'll follow you, Lord, till the death. By the way, um, a really helpful thing for me was about 11 years ago, I was diagnosed with melanoma, stage three. Stage four is slam dunk, it's over. Stage three is is iffy. And as a little kid, I always wondered, what what would it be like if I knew I was going to die? How would I handle it? Because I'm a worry wart. And uh, I'll tell you, not only the grace of God that comes, but the prayers of the saints, both living and departed, were just incredible. And you know what I got? I got that same peace I got the morning after I gave my life to Christ. I don't understand it, but I was just filled with peace. And I, I, I thought, what do, what do I want? And two things immediately came to mind. Number one, I want to build more churches. We need more orthodoxy in America. And then secondly, I want to get old with my wife. When we were in college, one night we, before we were married, we stopped over at my Christian grandparents' house. There were 75. They were sitting on the front porch swing. It was in summer, holding hands. They didn't see us coming. 75 years old, porch swing, holding hands. I don't know that I said it to Marilyn or said it to myself. I said, I want to do that. And I, I reminded the Lord of that. I said, I, I want to do that, Lord. And, you know, and yet I, I said, I know whether I live or I die, I belong to you. I, I'm saying this to you because there's peace. There's, there's a grace when the number is up. And I, one day the number will be up, just like it, it will be for all of us. And there will be peace if you trust him. And two other promises. One, I will build my church. I will build my church. John Braun used to tell a story of, uh, it was back during the communist era, of this American couple that took a vacation in Cairo. And while they were there, they were eating at a sidewalk cafe. And a guy came up to them and said, do you mind if I join you? And they said, sit down. He said, I'm from Moscow. My name is Ivan. He said, tell me about democracy. And so they began to tell him a little bit about the history of the country and um, the revolution and the desire to live out from under 
political oppression and um, how the Constitution was drafted in Philadelphia and the Bill of Rights and everybody gets to vote and all this stuff and the guy's just enamored. And we have, you know, free enterprise. In America, you can pretty well be what you want to be. And it's, 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 it's freedom. And you talk to any immigrant, I know Bishop Joseph starts waxing on how happy he is to be an American. It's always the freedom. So they talk to this kid and it's just it's incredible. He said, you know what? I, I'm, 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 gonna, I'm gonna adopt democracy. And they said, well, you know, let's book passage for you and figure out with the State Department how to get you over there and so you can come over and, and live in America. He said, no, no, I, he said, I, I'll adopt democracy. I, I want to stay in Moscow. But they said, but, but you can't experience it there. He said, no, I know, but I'll, I'll subscribe to the congressional record and memorize the Bill of Rights and memorize the presidents. And they said, but you, but you can't live it there. There are people today that say you can be a Christian apart from the church. In fact, it's kind of cool right now. In modern evangelicalism, there's a lot of people that love God, they tell us, that read the Bible, they pray, but they don't go to church. And, you know, I, I was quite hard on these people two or three years ago. And then I realized, and I know this is hard, but most of them don't experience church. They experience entertainment. They experience probably a decent Bible teacher. But when you stack that up against what the Lord built, it falls really short. And I thought to myself one day, if that's all I had of church, I wouldn't want to go either. So I'm not so hard on them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, back during World War II, predicted there would be a day called churchless Christianity. And boy, did he hit it on the head. So you can read the Bible, you can memorize the scripture. I'm for that. You can subscribe to the heavenly congressional record, if you will. But you'll never experience Christianity in its fullness outside the body of Jesus Christ. That's the way he planned it. It's hard enough in the church to live a Christian life, huh? Imagine doing it outside the church. We tried. And thank God he brought us back home. And then that final promise, in my father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you so. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will, I will receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. What a promise, what a hope we have as believers. And tonight I'm going to ask you that if you have never committed your life to Jesus Christ, I'm going to encourage you to do so tonight. If you are trying to live a Christian life outside the fullness of God's kingdom, which is expressed today in his holy church, I'm going to ask you to start making some moves toward the church. You can speak with any of the clergy that are here tonight, any of the sisters that are here, about what we call catechism, which is where you learn about the faith. 
And that as you learn and grow in your understanding of the church, that one day you will be received into the Orthodox Church and begin to experience to the fullest extent known to man the presence of God in his kingdom. It's life-changing. I've tried a lot of things in my life. In fact, uh, somebody coined the term a methobacterian. It's where you just try the whole thing. And then I, then I came home to the, to the original faith in the original church. I'm going to tell a little story on Tanya Maddox because she and John went through a lot of the same search that I did and probably most of, most of you in this room did. They finally ended up at uh, Father Pat Reardon's church, actually before he got there, wasn't it, in Chicago. And uh, I don't know whether John told me this or Tanya, but on the way home in the car, she turned to him and said, Honey, if this isn't it, there isn't an it. Beloved, in all humility, this is it. And I, I can say it because I had to scratch and claw to find it. It isn't it because I'm in it. It's it because it's it. And because it is it, by the grace of God, I'm in it. And so we close tonight inviting you to come. The Spirit and the Bride say, come. Come experience the fullness of Christ in his holy church. Thank you.